Thank you for knocking. Uh, please uh, lock the door behind you. Make sure that towel is properly positioned. Uh, you're walking in on another $5 buzz. Uh, the only thing we ask, Matt, is if you please use the spoon. <laughs> we don't want to uh, alert any unwanted attention. Uh, we're joined tonight, as always, by uh, your co-host, Peter Liska. How are you tonight? How's uh, things in Los Angeles? Fine, man. Beautiful day. Also in Los Angeles, we have Roger Mayer. How are you, Roger? Fantastic. And tonight's episode is entitled Farm to Toilet. Uh, and what does that mean? Uh, we've got a, a, a farmer. and We've also got an executive chef, uh, Matt McCormick in Chicago. How are things in the Windy City today? Uh, can't complain, George. Everything's going well. Excellent. And uh, we are joined by uh, Eric Lovendusky, who's in Greenwich, New York. It's not how the hipsters in New York City or Connecticut call it Greenwich. It's Greenwich. Is that is that right, Eric? That's right, George. Yeah, excellent. So, Eric, let's start. Uh, let's start uh, on the farming side. You know, uh, it, Eric, you're a very impressive guy. You know, I would say you're one of the most ambitious, driven, accomplished people that I know. Uh, you've got a 40 hour plus full time job, but you're also in running this really incredible farm that I'd like you to uh, give us a little uh, tutorial on. But if you don't mind, you grew up on a farm, um, but the night before you got the Potsdam is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. <laughs> We're going there, okay. If you don't mind, because I would be doing the listeners an incredible disservice, because this is one of my favorite stories ever. Eric, you leave your house and you borrow your father's car. What car are you driving that night? I was driving a 1967 uh, Camaro. Um, first year of the Camaro of the all-American pony car. And it was actually, it is, uh, one of the first Camaros that actually rolled off the assembly line in uh, upstate New York where they were making them at the time. So um, it was a beautiful car. Yeah, it was a bad, bad idea for me to take that car out that night. <laughs> and were you guys, uh, you know, you were leaving for college and uh, things got a little uh, hectic and you were doing Potsdam the next day and, um, it was a pretty eventful night. Yeah, so um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes, and it was um, sort of a tradition in the mid-90s for these back road parties. <clears throat> and, um, you know, at the end of a dirt road in the dark, and uh, people would sort of congregate there. I have no idea how we actually found each other with no cell phones. But um, as my father said, you know, guys hanging out and drinking beers through a funnel. Um, <laughs> That's what was going on that night. Um, and one thing led to another very late at night, still driving the Camaro around. And uh, we got the idea to light a giant pile of hay on fire in the middle of a field. Um, kind of <laughs> embarrassing. Um, and um, it would have been, probably would have been fine if, if that was all that happened. Um, but. I had to give somebody a ride home and this was after drinking way too much. Um, and it was almost sun up at that point, driving home, back roads, deep ditches. I fell asleep, woke up in the oh. ditch as the car's still moving. Um, miracle, you know, no seatbelt on or anything like that. Miracle that I, uh, I survived. So I walked to the nearest house and called my father and he pulled me out, but the police came and, um, then they started asking me about this fire that was only like a mile away. I didn't know about it. 
one thing led to another and one of the guys that was with us uh squealed and uh <laughs> yeah and uh and i got booked so yeah night before going away to potsdam and the next day i met george <laughs> and um is that the reason why uh the canadians are the canadians still upset with you will they let you in the country they won't actually uh 20 some years later i was uh, uh you know as a uh, professional uh environmental geologist now for 20 some years i had to go to canada for a meeting a couple years ago and uh i wasn't allowed in because of... <laughs> so this is me i gotta tell my boss why i can't go to <laughs> can't go to the meeting. Geologist slash arsonist. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, I guess that's how I'm getting introduced. <laughs> well, Eric, can you just, can you tell us a little bit, um, you know, briefly about growing up on the farm in central New York? I guess most people would know that part of the world. You grew up kind of near Cornell University. You know, what was it like growing up on the farm and how did that uh, transition into what you're doing today and if you can explain a little bit uh, about what's going on there because it's pretty it's nothing short of incredible man with uh, the animal life and uh, you know it's you know I guess it's considered a small business right there's not a lot of employees besides your family is that correct no the business is just um, myself my father my wife and my kids help out um, and uh, my brother's out when he has a free uh, week off, but it's basically, that's our group. But, you know, I grew up in the Finger Lakes, as I said, which is, you know, you picture New York, um, not like central Kansas, but this part of New York in the, in the Finger Lakes, wide open fields, um, hundred acre plus fields everywhere. And, you know, growing up in the late seventies, early eighties, farming really transitioned from, you know, small idyllic, uh, farmsteads to um, consolidations of larger farms, um, still family farms, but family farms that are, you know, multi-thousand acre uh, operations. Um, and uh, mostly related to how agriculture advanced through the farm bill, um, farmers had to figure out how to uh, become extremely efficient. And the way to become efficient was to reduce labor um, and uh, those who were, you know, running with animals had to reduce the labor on the animals, increase the herd sizes of the animals. So things just got bigger in scale, but smaller in, um, in man, uh, uh, man hours. So I saw farms that went from 100, 150 cows being a good size farm when I was in kindergarten to 2000 cows by the time I was in high school and some of those farms out there are, you know, you know, pushing 10,000 acres and milking six or 7,000 cows. Um, it's, it's just bananas. So that was, that was what I grew up in. My farm that I, I was on, uh, our family farm was about uh, 1,200 acres plus another thousand acres of rental ground and, uh, you know, commodity crops, corn and soybeans with some small grains as well, no animals. Um, and it was an operation that my father and his brother could run. But, um, you know, due to some tragic circumstances of my uncle uh, being killed on the farm, that prompted the sale of that farm back home. My father didn't want to stop farming. This was in 2014. Um, and I always wanted to farm. So we, we uprooted from central New York and found this property in, uh, on the Hudson River 
in Greenwich. Um, and we moved everything out here um, and just tried to figure out how we wanted to reinvent ourselves as farmers. Um, and, and what we noticed was that we couldn't be in that big system anymore. Um, it just wasn't gonna work for our ideals and how we wanted to move forward, particularly Nellie and I. So um, we, um, we, we really took a shift like a hundred years back and how the farm runs with some modern thoughts and uh, still using the efficiency model of how do we bring animals in uh, to this farmstead um, and raise them ethically in a way that's um, um, congruent to the environment, to what the animal's uh, nature is, um, and uh, what's gonna be beneficial to us as workers around those animals. Um, so. Um, the farm is, you know, a, I like to refer to it as a regenerative farm. That's a pretty common word for the types of farms that, uh, that we have, uh, where we have a focus on, you know, improving the soil, um, rotating the crops that we grow. So we're not monocropping, um, and trying to, uh, trying to run everything as a big system where there's a lot of moving parts, um, not one thing that we do. We do uh, several different things on the farm here with animals and crops and hay and straw. So everything sort of works together. Um, and, um, and, and it's good. It's, it, it's working out well. We're probably almost five years into it now, I guess. So um, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know if I, uh, if I, you know, if that's fascinating. You want me to dig more into, I know um, I could talk for hours about this. When you grow your crops, do you grow them in a vertical line or do you grow them in a spiral? So um, the fields out here, we're, our crops are planted dictated by the shapes of the fields. Right. Um, really. So very much sustainability. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and just how nature nature put the ditches and the and the ravines in certain places, and um, and we work with them. Um, but um, you know the 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 cattle side of the operation, we can move um, through a lot more rugged terrain than we can uh, with the crop side of things. So uh, the cattle can really do a lot of um, um, trampling of the underbrush and the you know, grasses that they're not gonna eat, which dies and then regenerates into uh, soil um, over time, so. And you reintroduce nitrates, how into the soil? Is that just by moving the crops from each season or what? Because I know down uh, in Brazil, the one thing that- Nitrates, I assume you mean like fertility? Yes. Um, like different um, nutrients. Right. Um, it's all based on the rotation that, that um, we, we, on the pastures and on the hay fields, we use the cows primarily for our fertility program. Um, okay. and, right, um, I got you. And the chickens as well. You know, yeah. the way we move the poultry over, excuse me, over the ground, um, they, um, they put down a lot of nutrients. Um, and then the, the, for, the, for the crop fields, we'll try to rotate the crops so we're not just putting say a corn crop on a field for year after year after year. Right, that's what the soils And things in to, um, to balance that out. Um, right. But um, to keep things in balance, we do still need to fertilize. That's, you know, I wrote a whole newsletter on that, which I think is on our website about, you know, one of the misconceptions of, um, 
of uh, a vegetarian society would result in an absolute lack of fertility in the soil if we didn't if we didn't uh, supplement the soil with um, with chemical-based fertilizers or animal manure. Animal manure is the, is 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 the ideal. And happy. Um, Pete, Pete, the, the, the title of this episode is called Farm to Toilet, and uh, Eric's really done a great job, you know, talking about the farm, and before uh, a consumer can get to the toilet, one way by doing that is eating food in a restaurant, and we also uh, are joined by Matt McCormick. <laughs> that's an amazing segue. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough... Uh... Eric's a tough act to follow. I'm just fucking I'm the farmer, over the farmer, Matt, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> Matt, your, your night before, uh, your first night, the night before you left Rochester, New York, you know, you were probably playing stick <clears throat> with Eric Britt or something, but uh, you originally did not set out to be a chef as far as I know. You were going to be an engineer. So um, I remember when we were in college, we had a kitchen in our fraternity house. And c can you... Do you remember how we used to get that, how we cooked food back then? Yeah, it was god awful. That uh, <laughs> that that was actually a really nice stove uh, at one point before we got to it, um, but that was uh, that was not a hygienic environment. Didn't we have to turn the gas on with pliers? And you, what do you remember? Do you remember how that worked? Uh, yeah, there were some pliers involved. I'm pretty sure that thing was rusty. There were there were padlocks on the refrigerators. <laughs> and George I think called a, a serviceman to come work on that stove, and uh, and and he said he saw better stoves in a dump. And our friend <laughs> Dan Cohen said, "What dump? We'll go and get it." Yeah. <laughs> and it was a it was a Vulcan rain. It was a Vulcan stove. I remember that. At one point, that was a good piece of equipment. I think that we used to light. We turned the gas on with a pair of pliers, and then <laughs> yep. somebody lit a match and just like ran away. He threw the match, <laughs> and just that's how we got it started, right? <laughs> Yeah, Ward's Ward's parents came through uh, when when I was cooking dinner in there one time, and they were they were just utterly disgusted. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so Matt, you went to school up in Potsdam. You maybe had a little too much fun. Did you go back to Rochester first, and then you know take us through uh, the the origin of how you became uh, a chef in uh, Chicago? Because I know you spent some time in Atlanta. You spent some time in Miami. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff, I'm sure, happened along the way. Yeah, so actually, you know, I grew up in the restaurant business. Uh, my old man uh, ran a, a dive bar in Rochester um, that did really good lunch uh, business um, with Kodak uh, factory workers. Um, and we could turn out. So, I, you know, I was there when I was 10 years old, sweeping up the parking lot, cleaning up puke in the bathroom, <laughs> um, you know, doing whatever he made me do for like $3 an hour in cash. Uh, you know, and, and kind of just came up in that, uh, worked in a pizza place, um, as soon as I could legally get a job at 14, uh, and did that through high school as well as working with my dad. So I, I kind of had the, the restaurant in my blood. I just didn't know that it was a viable, uh, future for a career. Um, so, you know, I took a lot of technology classes in, in, in high school and did well in math and science and my guidance counselor who I had never met you know, my senior year was like, you're, uh, you're going to school to, for engineering. And I said, okay. Um, so, you know, math, uh, calculus, uh, calculus, chemistry, and physics, uh, was my first two years of, of school. Um, I think I've shared some chemistry classes with you, Eric or not. Yeah. Yep. 
yeah I if, if i if i was there i didn't go very often <laughs> <laughs> um so uh yeah after deciding that was not my path i went back to rochester um i my first job actually when i when i when i dropped out and uh went back home was uh sea shift at a sunoco station uh and i did that for maybe two months um working overnight seeing like friends of mine from high school where i was a, an honor student uh coming in you know and i'm back there in my little sunoco tie uh you know selling cigarettes and gas um and then i got a job uh i got offered a job to wait tables at uh at a restaurant uh called don pablo's mexican kitchen that was opening up nearby um worked my way around there i was you know that was i think i was 19 uh first job waiting tables uh was bartending six months after that they made me a supervisor when i was 20 um got trained in you know in the kitchen and uh actually met um who would turn out to be my wife there um she encouraged me to go back to school so i took a few classes at community college for uh for hospitality and uh decided to go pro and uh said you know if this is the this is the path I'm going. I want to go to a school that's known for this. So um, I looked at her after we'd been dating for about 10 months and said, uh, what do you think about moving to Providence, Rhode Island? And we packed up and went there um, and, you know, ended up with a bachelor's in uh, hospitality management, somehow managed uh, to graduate with a 395. Um, but, amazing. you know, school, school is easy when you're doing what you love. So um, it just, you know, came naturally. Um, got recruited by uh, a corporate company out of uh, right out right out of graduation that moved us down to Atlanta. I uh, was in Atlanta for six months, um, then moved to Birmingham uh, out of training. The executive chef quit there when I was 26. Uh, with I, I think I was there for about four months, uh, almost no no you know I didn't know what I was doing, but I lobbied for his job and somehow got it. Uh, I worked 100 hours a week for uh you know three four or five months until i i figured it out and uh you know became good at it and it wasn't it wasn't my plan i was you know originally front of the house guy looking to go uh general manager and up that route but fell in love with the kitchen um ended up back in atlanta um when that company opened a second location then got moved to fort lauderdale um and then recruited by another company to open a restaurant in miami and um Moved back to Atlanta with a multi-unit chef job uh, with a with a friend from college, uh, and then got recruited for uh, the Weber Grill restaurant corporate chef job where I'm at uh, here in Chicago. Matt, so, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, Atlanta and Miami, both uh, culinary, um, you know, interesting culinary towns, but also big nightlife towns. Uh, Anything stick out from your time in Miami or Atlanta? You know, any favorite stories that, um, you know, people might be interested in from, uh, you know, uh, the restaurant point of view? Uh, I mean, I, you know, no, no specific restaurant stories. I've, I've, you know, over that time I've cooked for, uh, you know, all kinds of people uh, from Ja Rule and the guys from Outcast to, uh, uh, Richard Branson and Michael Jordan, Gloria Estefan. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been, it's been a fun ride, um, and just living in different places and picking up different culture. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big part of the story of, you know, what becomes your food as a chef when you move around like that, because you're not just going and visiting, 
Um, you know, when my wife and I go out to eat, uh, we're seeking out, you know, what, what is, what, what, you know, what is, what is the best food and, you know, I'm looking for what, what local, you know, people are eating, not just the fanciest restaurants in town, you know, what the, you know, the Cuban food in Miami is amazing. Um, there's amazing, um, just really authentic Mexican food, uh, both in Atlanta and in, uh, and in Chicago. So it's, it's, uh, it's just, you know, it's been fun to, to see how, you know, live in different places and absorb that culture. I don't think any, I don't think any of us are surprised at, at your rise. I mean, you've always been incredibly motivated and adjusted and pivoted and moved like water to get to where you're at. So it's that, I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible story, man. And also uh, Eric as well. I mean, you guys both, it's just, it's so amazing. I mean, for just for some context for the audience, you know, we went, we had the pleasure of going to college with you guys, but just to watch where you guys were then and where you are now is just absolutely special and, and, and really amazing. Eric, a term that we hear uh, on the, as a consumer, uh, you know, just in, you know, everyday life, uh, farm to table is something that is discussed and um, mentioned quite a bit. Um, what does that actually mean from the perspective of the farmer? Yeah, well, I mean, I can talk about it from the farmer's perspective. I'm sure Matt can shed some light on the um, what it means in the restaurant. But um, my view of of farm to table is is probably something that's going to be challenging for most people to really attain. Um, you know, really um, going right from your local farms um, to your kitchen, and um, you know, when you're in the middle of New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, um, that's going to be a lot more challenging um, than it would be, you know, out in a rural area where we are. But even even where we are, um, you know, it's seasonal. So you can certainly get meat and eggs from a local farmer. But when you dig down into that, how do you know um, what that local farmer is is it just, for example, we've got a farm around here. It's a um, um, big egg farm. I won't name their name, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. Big egg farm. They've got hundreds of thousands of chickens, okay? Um, they sell their eggs at the local grocery stores as local eggs. It's no different than an egg that came from, you know, wherever, the Midwest. An industrial farm situation. It's a giant farm. It's a giant Farm, nothing against them. I'm not going to talk bad about another farmer, but it's this illusion of, um, you know, I guess farm to table is another one of those terms that is thrown out there in, um, in the food system that is, I think, intentionally misleading in a way to just sell more stuff. Um, the same not say thing. organic, for example. Stuff. Organic is another one of those labels that, um, you know, not, I, again, in principle, um, farming in a way of the spirit of organic, which is really to do uh, the minimal harm to the environment and the health of the people eating the food in how you're growing that food. But it's, it's I mean, anybody who's read, like from what I think is the, 
the, the Food 101 book that Michael Pollan wrote back in the early 2000s, The Omnivore's Dilemma. If you eat food, you should read that book. Right. Um, the Omnivore's Dilemma? The Omnivore's Dilemma. Omnivore. Yeah. And, and it, for children, there's even, there's a young reader's edition out there too. My kids have read it. It's a fantastic primer on how the food system works and where it is right now, probably is due for an update. But anyway, um, this, the, you know, organic is just another label that often, you know, gets diluted to the point where the food really isn't that much different than, you know, the conventional uh, equivalent on the shelf. Is that to say, is that the saying, is that to say that there's no regulation, no regulatory body that says something is organic or can any Joe Blow farmer say my food's organic? No, no, you, they can't. There are standards, but the standards are written by the, the folks with the most influence over how the standards are written. So, you know, I refer to, and when I write, um, big chicken. You know, big chicken is a term that I throw out there. It's kind of like big oil, you know, and probably there was big whale, you know, when whale oil was a thing. So these, mm -hmm. these guys have, are lobbying politicians in uh, DC and the capitals of uh, each state. Exactly. They're, you know, they're, they're, the, the attempt I would assume is to continue doing the same exact thing with maybe minor tweaks and changes so that they could add this label on the food to be able to have it differentiate itself from the other food on the shelves. Um, there That's is- making it more expensive. And, and, and charge more for it. Um, and there is, there, there is a mountain of misleading information on a package of food. I mean- Misleading information. Well, I, beef, is, beef is probably, you mentioned beef, Pete. Um, you know, grass-fed is another term that is thrown out there. Um, right now in the United States, grass-fed beef product of the United States can be from another country. That's incredible. It's, it's incredible that we as, you know, um, a society that has a very strong farmer population allows that to happen. Uh, because, and it, it happens because, you know, the, the, those who have influence so, you know, us small guys, um, you know, we, we, we have to, we have to carve our own path, you know, through, um, through the awareness of just letting our customers know how we really are different. So when you get back, we get back to what is farm to table. The, the big thing is taking the time to get to know the farmer, but who the hell has time to do that? You know, yeah. and how, so it's a challenge. It really is a challenge. Um, Promoting full transparency helps. You it does. Yeah. Um, and seeking out the food labels that actually have some weight to them. There are a few certifications and things like that out there that actually do have some weight behind them. Well, so Matt, I mean, Matt, as a person who purchases beef to service several restaurants as a head executive chef, what are you looking for in the source of your beef? Or ideally, let's say you had in ideal world, where what would be your ideal situation to service a restaurant for for your meat needs? You know what so I mean. So that's that's a that's a complicated question. Yeah. Um, you know, in an ideal world, I want 
to be able to buy Eric's product for what I pay uh, for a commodity product. But gotcha. obviously, you know, that that doesn't work. So, you know, where, you know, I, I, I'll take it back to where, where Eric said that uh, the, the term farm to table is a little bit of an illusion uh, or a lot of an illusion. It, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, you know, and a lot of restaurants out there try to represent themselves as that by, you know, harnessing um, a couple ingredients locally, or even that they can say are all natural or responsibly raised. Um, and, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. And you have to, you, you have to be able to, you know, the, the, your guests have to be able to appreciate uh, the product you're using enough to, for you to be able to charge for it as an operator. Um, so that's the, you know, that's the quandary. Uh, and then, you know, take it to the level, you know, take it to where I'm at right now, where I have five restaurants in three states um, that all have more or less the same menu, you know, minus a few tweaks or, or, or whatever, um, you know, then there, how do you, you know, can, can, um, if you try to work that way, can farmers keep up with your needs? Do they always have the same thing? Like Eric said, seasonality is, is, is huge. Um, you know, in my past, uh, in my past company in Atlanta, we had, um, I was operating six different restaurant concepts with totally different menus, which was, you know, that was an avenue for me to say, okay, you know, I got to know my hog farmer real well, um, for the barbecue restaurant. And, you know, could I buy, could I afford to buy his product? for everyday things, not necessarily, nor could he keep up with my usage. Um, but, you know, we built a relationship together uh, to a point that, you know, it was, Hey, I have, I have this product I need to use. What can you do with it? And I think from, you know, when you think farm to table, it, it needs to be the restaurants that are doing it successfully. I mean, re in, in reality, the real farm to table restaurants have a farm on the, on the property. I mean, that's where I, that's where I'm coming to the conclusion that that's the, I that's mean, why aren't way. maybe the best restaurants in the world should be on a farm because otherwise, you know, what else is there? You know what I mean? I, I don't quite understand how you service a city like New York city, for example, with organic or, 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 yeah. I mean, those, the chefs, those, those chefs are, you know, that, that operate those menus that change daily or going to the market every day. Mm -hmm. um, do they, do they know, I'm, I'm sure they have a relationship with, you know, with the people behind uh, each tent, which is, you know, it's better than uh, it's better than, you know, ordering from, from the big uh, you know, the big box vendors and mm -hmm. you get to know, if, you know, you get to put a face behind it uh, which is important and you can tell that story. Um, but you know, it's uh there's, there's, it's a very complicated world. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're running a business and margin is uh, usually going to win out, isn't it? Well, you know, you have to, you have to be able to commit to what you can commit to or be go all the way in and be known for it. You know, the restaurants I've run are not known for that. So I can, I can piece some things in and I do my best to do that uh, wherever I can. Um you know, but I, you know, I work with Slagle, uh, Slagle Farms here, um, which is outside of, uh, outside of Chicago. Um, and I can supply three restaurants with product from there. Um, and there's another farm called Gunthorpe Farms um, that I can get product, similar product to Indianapolis and St. Louis. 
So I try, you know, I try to, when I run features, I can, I can go that route, but to put, you know, to put certain things on the menu, um, that we go through a ton of when we're in full, full blown operation and doing day, you know, yeah. 30 plus million dollars a year, uh, you know, the farm can't necessarily keep up with it. So it's, 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to it. You got to jump back and forth. Yeah. So to answer your question, Pete, in a perfect world, what would I do? I would buy all my product uh, from Eric and, uh, and charge for it and serve, you know, great responsible food. Um, You know, that would be the dream when you, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of cooking Eric's brisket uh, two weeks ago. The flavor there is, is delicious. You can, you can taste the difference between, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, those big box farms, um, you know, the chickens, the eggs, it's all, the flavor is totally different. Uh, and it makes you, you know, it makes it more of a celebration instead of just, you know, throwing a, a steak it, on the grill it, it on a Wednesday. It, it gives it meaning. It. Yeah. It gives it yeah. meaning, man. You should be very proud of that, Eric. That's really, really something. That's awesome. Yeah, sure. Well, I have a question for you guys yeah. as far as, <clears throat> okay. So the terms organic, the terms farm to table, we know that we a lot of restaurants, a lot of uh, organizations use this to help upsell their um, <clears throat> whatever they're selling. This all goes back to soy milk, obviously. When they first had it as a product, they try to sell it to mothers uh, as a cheap, lower uh, alternative to milk, and it went nowhere. And finally, Mike Milk and the Junk Bong King turned it around and sold it as an upscale item, and all of a sudden, it sold like gangbusters because it was all of a sudden healthy. You know, which we all know is bullshit. Soy also destroys. Anyway, well, I can go down about the rainforest and about cows and about vegetation and about soybean farms destroying the rainforest all day. But what I really wanted to ask you is, despite the fact that, you know, there are some real legitimacy to organics and farm to table. Uh, there is this whole, uh, when I'm up in um, shooting a movie up in San Rafael, there's a uh, the Good Earth, which is really... One of those rest or uh, supermarkets that prides itself and letting you know where ev- how far every single farm is, that is you know where you're getting this ingredient. They're proud of that, and, and they're very proud of that. My problem with that entire environment is all I see are rich white people in there, <laughs> and you know when I go down to where you know I visit my my cousin or when I go down just outside my doorstep, turn right, you know everything fast food restaurants and i was just wondering how do we take the organic industry and or healthier food industry and how do we apply that to you know a world that really needs it more than we do it is the important question that's for sure i mean roger that's a great question i think about that a lot we talk about that a lot around my house um because what are we trying to do we're trying to sell our stuff to everybody we want our products to be able to be in everybody's freezer um but it's hard because it's not to raise meat the way we do um all that being said i mean it's no secret that if you're poor life is hard right it's just it's not just hard to buy grass-fed beef it's (laughs) It's, it's hard to do everything. Pay electricity bills. Right. Yes, you got it. Charge but, up. you know, what we see, um, which is, you know, there, 
there's a piece about um, life today, and maybe it's been like that for a long time, where vanity is very important to people, right? Vanity is important and people spend their money, they make their choices and how they spend their money uh, in many ways in, in, in vain choices, you know, new TVs, new cars, right. big houses, Close. Um, and, and, and all those, all, all that is, is proportional to your income level. If you're dirt poor, maybe you just buy a big trailer. I don't know. Did you really need the big trailer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, so it's all relative. Food is food and eating high quality food isn't, does not provide and does not fulfill any vanity requirement for somebody, right? It doesn't. Which, That's true. And, 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 and I'm just as guilty as anybody else. I'm not calling every, I'm not saying that I'm not like this. I make, you know, I, I, I like to have a new truck and, you know, so um, the, the problem is, um, I think sit, people say, well, Eric, your stuff's expensive. I can't afford it. I'm on a budget. Well, we have to eat steak every night. You know, you no, don't. You shouldn't eat steak every night. I mean, how, I mean, how <laughs> just, just, you take a, you take a, you, you take a 700 pound hanging weight steer. Okay. You got eight pounds of tenderloin on that. 700 pounds of hanging weight steel steer. You got eight pounds of tenderloin on it. That's the most expensive cut, right? And everybody right. wants the tenderloin. <laughs> but my, parent, my parents owned a butcher shop when I was 12, 13. So yeah, I, I remember cutting those, uh, those sides up. So how many, how many that comes out to. Uh, but go right. on. How much, I mean, how much, what you're saying is how much. There's a lot of ground beef in a steer. Right. It's just a little. Yeah. And any farm will sell bulk ground beef, very high quality ground beef that we sell um, at, at a real competitive price. But you got to save a little bit for that if you, I mean, we can't sell a pound of ground beef for the same price we sell 100 pounds of ground beef. So getting back to, you know, life is tough when you're, when you're poor. Uh, and we wish we could do, you know, we wish we could, we could take care of everybody. But the reality is, if you're on a budget, you got to look at how you're spending your money in a way that if health is a priority, if the environment is a priority, that, you know, you, you got to shuffle some priorities around a little bit and a farmer will find a way to, to get good food in your freezer. It also seems that... that it also seems that the, the general conscious of the people needs to change and education about the matter needs to change a little bit because while in poorer communities, the only options might be Jack in the Box or McDonald's, you know, it's because it is a dollar for a burger and you have to eat something to sustain, even though the last de three decades of this shit has caused several uh, societal woes that we can get into illness and cancer and everything else. But it's amazing to me. I think the answer lies with the farmers in the sense that that you tend to be the most uh, repurposeful, the most thoughtful about using everything to its maximum effect, using every inch of your land, using reusing everything. Nothing goes to waste. 
how do we convey that to the general population? How does how does nothing go to waste? How do we help? What is the solution essentially? I know it's a big ask. It's a, it's a, it's a big loaded question, but very basically, how can we get this this better attitude about food to and in, in, in educating folks? Really, that's what it comes down to, you know, because yeah. I know for myself, we throw away food that's perfectly fine. It's it's it breaks my heart, you know, but how do you fix it? I don't understand how you fix it. You you beat me to the punch on uh, education, Pete. Um, Go elaborate, I, please. I you know, I don't I don't have the answer, but you know, Eric was talking about big chicken and other big producers are you know, lobbying to call the shots. You know, if you guys remember the food pyramid, uh, you know, from when we were kids, uh, it's a pretty screwed up situation. If you think about it now, what, you know, we were, we were meant to like live on a, a, a diet of, of bread, right? Because that was that's what was... by Kellogg and, uh, and, yeah. and those guys. Yeah. It's amazing, and, and that's, isn't it? Well, and that's, that was what was available. And that's what, you know, that's what people could afford. So, you know, that's, that's, I think that's all part of it. But when you, you talk about education, it needs to be education uh, to change people's perspectives on what's important. And, and, you know, so that instead, and, and, you know, people in areas where, you know, those, those, uh, you know, those, those deserts of, of, you know, good quality food, a lot of folks uh, in those areas don't know how to cook uh, food or prepare it right. So, you know, I, there's, there's good movements out there to, to educate, you know, people on how to cook a, a, a nutritious dinner. I think that's, I think that's important. I think chefs, you know, should be doing that uh, all over the place. Um, you know, the farmer, the farmer can only do so much. It's gotta be, you know, society needs to step in and realign people's perspective on, on what's important. Do you think because, it's, un- do you think it would be un-American to tell a farm they can't be as big as they are? I mean, cause that, because now you're talking about their their potential to make money and everything else. So, but at some point, this industrial farming, especially with um, with uh, pork, is I mean, it's unbelievably awful to watch some of the shit that's out there. And I, you know, again, we don't have to go down that whole thing, but at least locally, make state by state you know, max out the food that you need for the state in a way or something like that. There's got to be another viable, smart solution than what we have currently, because there's no, there's no reason that I'm in California and I'm getting, you know, meat from anywhere else besides California, but I, we are for sure. You know? Yeah. California is the only real, the only, only, uh, probably state in the union that is that really can do farm to table and, and speak that because you've got you've well you've got growing you know a, a broad growing season i love going to california everything tastes better you know a caesar salad at a random place in san francisco tastes a thousand times better than it does almost anywhere else in the country because the, the produce has not you know been been picked early and ridden across the country and um you know, there's, it's just, it's fresher. Well, part so, of that is there's an artificial environment out there that's been created by irrigation of the Central Valley that really shouldn't be productive as it is, but the, you know, the, 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 the use of water and the allocation of that resource out there is, um, 
is a big deal, right? For those of you who live in Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, my yeah. God. Like the grapevine you're talking about, the Dust Bowl and that whole, and all the almond farms and all that stuff that suck up all of the water and they've gone down aquifer after aquifer. I know, yes, I, I, I know a little bit about it, but. It's all yeah. about the movie Chinatown. That's good. Great. Pete, thank you for reloading us there, Matt. Please make sure. The only thing I ask is please make sure you use that spoof. <laughs> Matt, you were the first person uh, that I ever heard use the term ghost kitchen. And it's funny now I work for a technology company that has a ghost kitchen component to it. And I think that was only maybe six months ago. So can you explain a little bit uh, what you, you know, can you tell us what a ghost kitchen is? Uh, and, you know, I think the pandemic might've accelerated, uh, a change in the way that rest, the restaurant business is being conducted, but can you also talk about the pressures that a restaurant has to deal with as it relates to on-demand food and dealing with these third-party, uh, delivery companies, your DoorDash, your Grubhub, uh, Postmates that... Uh, from my point of view is almost like doing business with the mafia in the sense that you kind of have to partner with these guys, whether you like it or not, because on demand dining is a thing that is there and it's not going away. And these guys kind of have you by the short and curlies in a sense that the customer expects you to be on Uber Eats and on DoorDash and it lowers the customer experience, whether showing up late or not showing up at all, damaging the brand, not giving a shit about, you know, Matt, you're an executive chef. You work very hard on your dish and your menu and, you know, your ingredients. And you have this guy showing up, smoking a blunt with a subwoofer parking on my grass when my kids are in bed. And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I can look the other way, but a lot of people can't. So all things considered, you know, what are your thoughts on uh, all of those dynamics? Okay. So that was like 10 questions, but I'll, I'll do my best. I went to uh, SUNY. So real, so real, I, real. And I don't have a region. And, and you I don't have a region. I do not have a region diploma, so you guys got to bear with me. Eric, did you get, did you make the regions? Yeah, it's a miracle, man. <laughs> Everyone has okay, a region so, except uh, for me, okay? So, so, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that and go, but, uh, reel me back in if I, if I, uh, get off track. Uh, so first question, um, ghost kitchen, first kitchen. Uh, so what is a ghost kitchen, right? So there's, there, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a broad, uh, it's a broad term that encompasses a couple different operations. So, you know, there's ghost kitchens out there that are a facility um, that is built for delivery service, uh, execution. So there's no guests. It's, it's, uh, you know, small package, uh, very, you know, uh, very minimal square footage. Um, only what's needed that's meant to, you know, pack everything in a box, put it in a bag and go no. So there's no customer service, um, which, you know, that's, that's not something I have any experience with. Um, you know, the ghost kitchen that, that I first brought up to you, um, was our first stab at coming up with it's, it's, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a restaurant concept that only lives on those, as you call them mafia based, uh, delivery sites, 
um, that people can order from. So, you know, we came up with a different menu, um, ingredients that we could cross utilize um, in the kitchen um, that had its own identity, built a website and uh, tried it out in a couple markets. Um, you know, what, what I'm seeing right now is, is it, there's a lot of saturation. It's, there's so many ghost kitchens out there. You know, I live, I live in, uh, uh, Ukrainian village in, in Chicago. I'm, I'm about two, 1.7 miles technically from our restaurant in river North, uh, Chicago, which is, you know, right in the mix. And on DoorDash, I have 1,187 different, uh, entities that'll deliver, deliver to me. Um, you know, which is a lot. So when, when, and, and when you look at them, you can identify as a consumer who, who is a, a ghost kitchen who's legitimate. So, you know, it's a tough market. Um, we're, we're talking we're, like, I'm sorry. It's like, so a ghost kitchen is this, could it potentially be someone out of their apartment making food? Well, I, maybe technically, I, you know, I guess, I don't know how the regulations go for setting things up because they just send people in, uh, they, you know, DoorDash will send people in to, uh, delivery guys in to pick, pick up food. But, um, you know, I don't, you, you, I mean, technically you have to be licensed. You have to be permitted. Uh, you know, you can't just, you can't just do it out of your house. By There's a really rules interesting dynamic about, um, DoorDash's business practices, which I've kind of learned about uh, via the, the new company that I'm working with, is DoorDash originally would send drivers out with preloaded debit cards and just show up at a restaurant and said, I'm here to buy a meal. And the, the, biz, the restaurant owner is like, I don't even know who you are. You know, they don't even know that they're on this website. So it's it's very... It's a frontier lawless um, industry right now. And there's, you know, the regulation is like, I read the stories a lot and it's kind of a wild west situation where Matt, they're charging a restaurant 30% to do a delivery. And, you know, I, I, I come from the finance world and I used to work on the European stock market. So my point of view isn't just from the United States, it's global, uh, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and I can't think of a single fucking business that charges their customer 30%. Like George, 30%, where did that number outrage. Where did that, where did that 30% come? Who decided that? That's, you know, I think they figured out that's what they could get. And Internal uh, arbitrary number. <laughs> I think it's, on it's, different. Food, it's, di it's different in different markets and there's some regulations in different places. So I, you know, we're down to, uh, I think, Chicago has capped it uh, under twenty percent. Really? Um, and Not I mean, LA. So if I order a hundred dollars, no, I, I, California has has uh, has has. Uh, I think they were on the on the forefront of regulation for that. They the are the management. The price, the price between delivery and pickup is astronomically different. The other thing is, guys, that on the back end, more, DoorDash will. DoorDash will go to a restaurant, whether they ask or not. And Matt, they'll go to your restaurant and they'll build their own menu and escalate the prices above what you're selling in the store. And also what they'll do is, let's say you own webergrill.com. They'll buy webergrill.net, webergrill.org, webergrill.edu. And um, 
they're in cahoots or they have some type of business relationship with Google and these search engines and they'll depress your site to page two, who goes to page two. So they'll never, the customer will never get to your actual website. They'll go to DoorDash's website and Grubhub's or Uber Eats where prices are elevated. So again, the customer is getting this artificial experience where those aren't the prices that you're charging. Well, so, they're, so they're, that's not hundred percent accurate. Uh, and and I, I'm not I'm not propo a proponent necessarily of how we work with these guys, but they also you know they did they they provided a service when we were shut down and didn't have yes. you know all, we didn't have a, a, a way to to have uh, guests and the only way you know we could operate in restaurants was uh, through delivery um, and they generated revenue for us and while the margins got slimmer we learned how to get uh, we learned how to get tighter at, at operations. Um, was it smaller so, portions and, or, or, I mean, no, working with less people and, and optimizing our business, you know, a lot like Eric was talking about with, you know, doing more with less man hours. Uh, so, so it's made, it's made the restaurants that will hang on. It's made them stronger. Um, the COVID, uh, pandemic I'm talking about, not, not necessarily yeah. delivery sites, but yeah. you know, to speak, to speak to, you know, DoorDash, we, you know, DoorDash was a really good partner with us and you know, we, if, if we take an order on our own website, uh, for delivery, it auto prompts the guest to DoorDash, um, and we don't pay a commission on it. A lot of restaurants do that. So that's, really? that's, you know, they were, they were ahead of the game as far as, you know, Uber eats in my opinion, or I'm sorry, Grubhub in my opinion was the, was the king of delivery as a, as a, as a lazy guy with no kids who gets, uh, you know, gratuitous uh, amounts of food delivered to the house because my wife and I both work in the restaurant business and work odd hours. So how do you so, reconcile with, you know, a hundred dollar meal in your restaurant? If I live a mile away from your restaurant, it costs me $140. Well, you're paying. 40, yeah. I'm, we, I'm, we, paying, we, we, I'm getting my, my face ripped off. My, my prices uh, on Grubhub and, and DoorDash and Uber Eats are the same as they are on my menu. Um, when you're talking about unsolicited delivery, that's Postmates, and uh, we kick those guys to the curb. Mm -hmm. So um, you know that's and but you know and DoorDash had their ass handed to them here in Los Angeles by In-N-Out. In-N-Out will not use any of those services whatsoever, and they were on DoorDash, and DoorDash had to rethink who they were because that was their biggest seller. And I'll so tell you what, the only way to profitably do delivery is to do it yourself. Outsourcing this to a third party and paying 30% is an outrage and you'll never make money. And I agree, I, I agree with you hundred uh, percent on that, George. And I, I think the, what you're doing, uh, where you are and, and where that's going to go will be the wave of the future. And I, I, I think it's not even, you're not even at the, you're not even above sea level on the iceberg. Um, but everybody in my industry is so underwater because, you know, my corporate office shrunk, uh, shrunk in half a year ago. Mm -hmm. So now I'm wearing, I'm wearing four other hats that I wasn't wearing before, which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, keep plugging away and doing what I'm doing and we're working efficiently, uh, in that mode. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're not, we're to take, to undergo that process of, taking it in house. We just, we, we're not there. We can't do it yet. I would just say that from what I'm observing is there's a real opportunity for the smart 
business owner in the restaurant uh, industry to really come out swinging after COVID. But I think there's going to be a lot of casualties. I think there's going to be a lot of people just getting run over because they got comfortable. They got lazy. They didn't want to think. They didn't want to adapt. But the guys that are nimble and are um, forward thinking, there's a real opportunity to come out of this kind of re reborn and, um, you know, really giving the customer a great experience. I definitely think that I definitely think that the 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 board has been erased and there's a, a new opportunity, but that also makes me wonder. Maybe has, I'm I'm just speculating here, but Eric, like on the farm side of things, has this kind of been a blessing that there's like this hard reset in all this business, and maybe now guys like you that are building up might get another look because there seems to be maybe have you have you seen an increase in your business and an increase or an opportunity as a result of the last year now we're we're by by the time this thing comes out it will almost be one exact year of a pandemic so would you would you say that your growth has been helped or hurt by this because obviously you know, we, we've pointed out that restaurants need have needed to adjust and adapt, but where's the farm stand on that? For us as a small operator, you know, pre-COVID, you know, we're growing. We were processing a dozen cows a year, maybe a little less than that. If, if, if we could have killed 100 cows last year, we would have sold them all. Awesome. Wow. It, it was it was absolutely bananas in April, May, and June, where you all remember, like there was like there wasn't meat in the grocery store, right? That's true. I remember Clink and I drove up to your house. I remember yeah, George and Dave drove up to my house and bought a half a cow out of the freezer. <laughs> you know? Wow! Yeah, it because at the very beginning it was like, is this going to be like Mad Max? Like, well, no, right? Yeah, nobody we knew. didn't know. Yeah, we didn't know. The reality is, is that when, and, and this goes into like the bigger system, when, when everything hit the fan and the shelves didn't have meat on them in the grocery store, it wasn't because there wasn't meat. It was because there was no one to, to, to process the meat. It was also in the restaurant supply chain instead of in the retail supply chain. Right. Very good point. So you get this idea and this glimpse of how fragile the big supply chain is. Um, I mean, you, you, good luck buying a dishwasher now, too. I mean, maybe now it's a, we tried to buy one this summer, right? I had to buy one in, out of Milwaukee. and You couldn't get a dishwasher. <laughs> so this wasn't just farming. So we were able to, um, Nellie responded very quickly, got a website up and running, got an online uh, sales outlet so we could adapt and start to sell and, and ship meat. Um, for us as a small operator and, 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 and Nelly being ambitious enough to jump on it and make it happen, uh, we were able to, to, to really leverage that. Um, I, the, the big operators, you know, Pete, you talk about the, you know, the massive hog farms, they were screwed. You know, they have this throughput. It's, you know, pigs, piglets come in, they get raised, and they got to go out. And that kill site, the slaughterhouse interruption, was devastating 
to the supply chain. They, they, they had, there was no, there was not, you could buy a tractor trail. You could, they, they would pay you to take a tractor trailer load of, of fully grown pigs in April. Wow. Living? Live. Because nobody, yeah, they had to euthanize. There's no one. There's nobody no can process them. Wow. Even I mean, our local processors around here, we send our animals to a few local processors. Um, and these are craft butcher shops. You know, these are, this is, this is butcher shops that, you know, the people that are in there are doing 10 different things on an individual day. Um, and it's one of the reasons why our product is so good because it's, it's a craft that they have in there. But our local butcher shops normally are booked two or three months out. Right now, there's the, even in 2021, we can't get, a, we had to book all our animals for 2021 last year. Holy shit. So That's I can't, incredible. Even, if we wanted to process more animals, we couldn't. We would have to ship them somewhere. I don't even know where we, it's not even worth it to me to look at <coughs> Wow. I remember um, you and I had some conversations. I remember one of the scarier parts of the COVID uh, process for me was reading about how like the food supply chain was really breaking down because all the folks that worked in the slaughterhouses, like there was a high transmission rate or they were worried about, you know, these guys working in close quarters and they were shutting them down. And they're like, look, you guys can't go into work and, you know, be this close to each other and touching animals, yeah. you know, without any sort of uh, protection. And I remember that being a real, I remember that for me, at least was, you know, very uh, disturbing and to think about. Another book reference, George, you bring this up about, you know, the, 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 the slaughterhouses. Um, uh, Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, that he wrote, it's another early 2000s book on the food system, he goes into pretty deep detail. My son's actually reading it right now um, about the the meat processing and the the line speed. And and you read about even now. I read I read farm stuff all the time. The line speed is regulated by the USDA. How fast they can process animals and how you know how it, it's it's obscene how quickly they run through a carcass um, in a major processing facility. Major pr cow processing facility in the United States, there's you know, a dozen of them or so, will kill and process over 2,000 animals a day. It's bananas. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, look, I do, I, Roger, I do realize we need to wrap it up, but I guess my point with the question is, is that, it's it, what's interesting about that I'm just realizing now with with these two particular guests is that on one side you've got this reinvention of the restaurant industry and that world but on this other side you've almost got a rebirth and an opportunity and where I've seen in so many ways of this whole this whole experience this whole pandemic experience has been a great reset for us as a society to get back to some basics and whereas farming and what Eric's doing is a basic thing and where where Matt's in this you know big corporate chef environment that's that's got to rethink you have to you have, you're forced to adapt in a different way than Eric is forced to adapt and it's kind of fascinating to me that in almost 
if there's good to come out of it, let's maybe this is a good thing. Maybe there is a good thing after all, you know, is what I'm learning to, from this conversation. I love so, the optimism, Pete. Well, hey, I'm listen, trying, man. You know, no, I'm listen, trying. listen, Pete, dude, we're, you know, this is the, the restaurants that come out of this are going to come out stronger. There's going to be a lot of casualties. There already have been. And they'll, that'll continue. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're looking at restaurant spaces right now because we, we were already on a, on a, on a path of uh, optimization. And we, if we had not been on that path, we would have, we'd be dead in the water right now. I'd be, yeah. you know, I'd and be I mean, washing dishes yeah. somewhere. I mean, it's so, amazing. It's, a, it's, it's amazing. I'm so happy for you. I know you said you're wearing four different hats, but that's, that's part of your, I mean, knowing you, how I know you on a personal level, you're in a, you'll adapt in a, in a just an improvise in any situation anyway, but to see, you know, Eric on the other side of the coin, you know, you, you guys, you know, put sunk everything into this deal. And now this great, almost act of God for lack of a better term is happening and given a chance that, you know, maybe there's hope, maybe there's hope because it, it, there should be. <laughs> it's it's a very it's simple a, effect, you know. It's a hard reset all the way from the farm to the toilet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. there is. So there Eric, is. um, before we go, tell you know, tell the people where where to look for you guys. Tell, tell us Slate River Farm and yeah, yeah. Slate River Farms, we are on the socials and uh we have a website and um I love their Instagram. I look at it so every good. day. I absolutely it's amazing. Love it. Yeah, makes my day. Yeah, makes my morning. It's um, it, it's a, it's a grassroots organization, but yeah, that that's us. Slate River Farms. We're on all the socials, and we have a website out there, and you can Google us, and it'll take, it'll take you to us. And 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 I think you know, if I can just say one more thing here, is that you know, just talking about this is 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 one of the best ways to get everybody to know the nuances of farming and going to the bathroom. Yes, you know, yes, dude. it's all important. It's all important, man. <laughs> Matt, um, what? Who do you want to give a shout out to? Uh, I mean, check us out, WeberGrillRestaurant.com. Um, we've got you know we've got all kinds of things going on. We're doing e-commerce packages, uh, like Eric, um, with steaks and burgers and uh, ribs. We have a YouTube video, uh, a YouTube channel where. I teach you how to cook those things uh, in a video. Um, and, you know, we're doing virtual grilling classes. We're doing all kinds of wild stuff. So uh, come check us out. You know, on, it's on worth all those socials. You know, what's worth mentioning is um, uh, early on in the pandemic, Matt was, uh, they were, he was taking, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were telling me about this awesome thing you guys are doing when you came out to visit about feeding your employees and, and making these pre-packed mm -hmm. meals and, 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 and not letting any of that product go to waste. And that's the kind of thing I love to hear about too, man, that you guys were doing, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome we're not, stuff, you know, we're not, you know. we're not, uh, we're not, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not, a, uh, uh, working, you know, a whole lot of charitable organizations right now. We're just trying to take care of our employees. Well, we, you know, we, and that's, that's the most important thing you can that's do. That's charitable yeah. contribution right now for everybody. Yeah. For them and us. Hey, yeah. Roger, um, you might want to, I don't know, maybe, I don't know where you stand on this last uh, item I have here. You might want to hold your nose, but Eric, <laughs> um, let's end on this. 
Yesterday was the 35th birthday for a master of puppets. And today is Jason Newstead's birthday. No so kidding. tell me your favorite. Let me put you on your spot. Metallica. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> Love and Dusky. Well, um, my favorite Metallica story, I mean, I, of course, you know I love Metallica. I know, because you and I used to ride up to the gym in your red Subaru, and it's fucking negative 10 out, and me and Eric would go to the gym, and you would always park in the breezeway, and Metallica Blackened came on, and I'm like, dude, I will run through a wall right now, because I'm listening to fucking Blackened by Metallica. So those guys, they hazed Newstead. If this is Newstead's yeah. birthday, they hazed yeah. him so hard that when and Justice for All was produced, they turned his bass down to the point where it was, it, it was like noticeably too low <laughs> for the whole album. There's no bass on that record, right? And, and, and there, you, you can go on YouTube and you can find it. Um, there's, a, there's a recording ca called, I think it's called And Justice for, uh, for Newstead or And Justice for Nathan. <laughs> Where they what are we talking about? Uh, mastered with his bass lines at the proper volume. So, guys, I just wanted to give a little respect to uh, Jason Newstead on his birthday. And Roger, I know that you have a relationship with uh, Mr. Trujillo. So, where do you stand on Jason? Newstead? Well, I mean, I'm a fan in this in this story. I don't, I, listen, I love Master of Puppets. I love those first two or three records, even though the first two were really written by Dave Mustaine. And the, uh, you know, I, and, and Les Capel was almost the bass player in that band. But, you know, I'm friends with Robert Trujillo. We made a movie together about Jaco Pastorius. And, you know, my allegiance, Robert hasn't really, except for the last album, you know, he's a hired gun. Right. He's a very expensive hired gun. Right. And he knows that. He has other things that he would like to do. You know, he obviously is not going to burn a bridge with the, people that keep him employed but he has other leanings that he you know he's played with ozzy he's played with you know just about everybody everybody but and that I, concludes farm to toilet to metallica <laughs> yes happy birthday jason newstead we'll see you guys out there um when you open the door matt just make sure the ra doesn't see us and uh you know have a good night guys thank you for coming guys that was